Hey, it's E.B. Moss, and this is Episode 7 of It's Quite a Living. I wanted to add a special intro because this show was recorded a few weeks ago with my new friend, Ruth McDaniels, who's running for city council in District 9 of Harlem. You can find out more about Ruth at friendsofruthmcdaniels.com. Now, we actually met at a Zoom fundraising event where she was invited with her artist friend named Flash to also speak about the killing of George Floyd, which had just happened. So I'm releasing it in honor of George Floyd on the anniversary of his death. While unfortunately, some of Ruth's audio went in and out, I do urge you to stick with it and listen carefully to all Ruth McDaniels has to say. I think you'll agree it's quite a living. Ruth McDaniels, so good to see you. I can see you, but people will only hear you. But, you know, I think we want everybody to hear what you have to say. How are you? I'm good, E.B. I'm really good. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. You look, you look good. <laughs> well, we're recording this spontaneously at the end of a day, in the middle of the week, and in the middle, towards the tail end, actually, of your campaign to be elected to city council in Harlem. Yeah, we're all a little tired, but you're a trooper. You're amazing. And that's why I wanted to have you on, because it, it's quite a living, Ruth McDaniels. And this typically is about my friends in high places, my friends living an interesting life. I just like to talk about how we got to know each other. And Ruth, we haven't known each other that long. No, we haven't. But it was like instant love. It was. I did. It, it, in, in truth, it was because I had some interesting people on that line that day. And, and you were one that really stood out. I mean, um, you weren't as combative as a lot of people were. And it, it, mm. that was a different group. That was well, a different group. So let's back up for a second. Why don't you explain the scenario? Because you were with your artist friend. Yes, yes. Flash. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she asked me to do this little show about George Floyd and, and how it affected the community. And I'm like, listen to this. Listen to this. You want to ask a black chick about how George Floyd affected me. And you want to have a bunch of white people sit up here and process this. Mm -hmm. And I'm expected to be as nice and as gentle, and delicate as possible. Well, people looking at me who don't have a clue. And I'm like, you don't even realize that um, I've been traumatized. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even important that I was traumatized. It was just important that you needed information for a specific demographic about a specific situation on the auspice of them trying to say they would help. But really, in reality, we'll help you at a profit for us. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, was, that, was, that was a bit much for me. Yeah. It was a bit much. It's, it's been a learning curve, I have to say, to be white in America but it's not a learning curve to be if, black if it's a in America. Part for you, this must be the slide in the base being black in America because it's all clicks to the head every moment of the day. So, yeah, you know, really? it's it's different. It's more than a learning curve every day. 
It's interesting. Well, I I would love for you to share anything you want to share, but I want to talk about your interesting personal history and how we got to this point where we met. Um, I don't know. Was it? It was right after George Floyd. Yeah. It was on, a, on, the, on like three or four days after that. Oh, we, we, we so met. Almost, yeah. yeah, a year ago almost. Yeah. Wow. And we've only known each other virtually and I cannot wait to give you a hug. I'm going to pop up there and, and give you a great big hug. Hopefully it will be on my victory day. Hopefully. Oh my gosh. From your mouth to God's ears. So from my mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so let's back up and and help everybody hear you. Well, the 17 people who who will listen to my podcast now. Okay. <laughs> We're going to push it out. Um, Angels are listening and God is always listening. This is why I you love know, you. You never know. You never know what this will be. Mm-hmm. You never know. Don't underestimate it. I love that. Um And that's actually sort of the premise for this podcast, because I feel like I've been so incredibly blessed to cross paths with so many interesting people. And I I feel like it's been a gift. So you're, you're a gift on here right now. I want a little slice of your life. I know you are second generation Trinidadian. I know that, well, you, you tell me what you would like to share about your early years? I'm an only child um, <clears throat> who's experienced molestation, who has had a child in their childhood. I mean, I was a mother from 17 up, you know, and different time. It was a different time, and there were different opportunities. Always, um, really focused on how I wanted to do things and live my life. And being a child from families of immigrants, of, of second-generation West Indians, you know, there's a different level of maturity there. That's not the usual child. It comes with different responsibilities. Even though you have the stature of a child, you might have the intellect of, of somebody 25, 30 years old because your experiences are different in, in their verbiage with you are different. I mean, my mother's favorite saying was, you know, I'm two generations out of slavery. I used to be like, what's wrong with this woman? What is she talking about? But now as I get older, I understand. She always wanted me to understand where I'm coming from, understand my place, understand where my correction is from, understand the motivation in me giving you direction. And not communicating. And like with my grandchildren, a lot of things that I do with them are unspoken because I come from a place where things were not spoken. And my mother made that clear. Two generations out of slavery, that means her mother was a child of a slave. So mm-hmm. everything that you might have wanted to say, you couldn't communicate. So things had to be visual, like a stern face or you know, a body gesture. And those are things that translated through my childhood. Like she wasn't gonna say everything. Would be in a glance. Like, if you don't get it, girl, you go get it, girl. <laughs> like, things like that. Other than that, I mean, I don't think that my life was very different. It was funny because I had my daughter at 17 and I was home for two years with her. And a friend of mine's mother, God bless the dead, Deborah Carter, she said, You know, you should take your GED. And I said, Okay, because I've been home with this baby and all my friends were still going to school. 
started a correspondence school because I went to a Catholic school. You know, that was taboo. Aquinas, you could not come in there with no belly. You had to stay home. They hit you. <laughs> so I listened to my girlfriend's mother and I went to the GED and I passed. And that chapter of my story changed everything for me because when people were counting me out, I was still very much involved. Yeah, I was an underdog then because they were like, oh, she's had a baby. Don't be with her. And then here it is. This child took a GED and graduated with the same kids who she went to school with. We all went to college together and they couldn't believe it. So I want to repeat that people were counting you out, but you were still involved. I love that. And the other thing, again, I don't know you that well, but I do know that education has been several different chapters in your life and not necessarily in a linear way. So what happened when people had counted you out? What did you do next? I went to college and that didn't work, you know, because I was a mother. I still had my responsibilities. And then I just said, I'll get a job. And I started working for a notorious collection company, Towers Financial, Steve Hoffenberg. He was indicted. Good man. He was a good man. I don't care what they say. He was a good, he took care of his employees. Okay. They wanted to send me to school and they sent me to Adelphi University. I became a paralegal because they thought that I I, I had the wherewithal to do that. And I did. And I was really successful. And in that career, I met a city marshal. And he said, you know, Ruth, I think you would be phenomenal if you became a, 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 a marshal. You'd be the first black female city marshal. And I was like, really? And I said, okay, let's let's look at what it takes to be a city marshal. And he said, you got to get peace officer status. And that's when I went to the Board of Education. That's when I started really a career because school safety had peace officer status then. And I went and I got the job. And maybe a week before I got peace officer status, Giuliani came into office and he stated that he was going to start making um, New York sheriffs and city marshals appointed positions that he would appoint. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me back up. So you passed whatever tests and I needed to pass to become a peace officer so that I could even apply for the city marshal. But as soon as I got ready to apply and I had other sheriffs and marshals who were going to actually um, endorse me to become this, Giuliani came and said, no, I'm going to appoint those positions. He gave it to all his cronies. And I was like, this is crazy. So I still had a very lucrative career as a as a paralegal doing summonses complaint, and I still worked for the Board of Education. So I had two jobs, and I mean, it didn't matter. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. Such is life. I did that school safety for a while and left the law firm, and then 9-11 came around. I had other children and got remarried, and um, my husband was like, you know, after 9-11, you can't be the front line of defense for the city of New York. Because by by that time, it was no longer under the Board of Education, but it was under NYPD, and their requirements were different. And I changed over to HRA police. And what's that? Human Resource Police. And and the welfare. What does that mean? And the welfare and the shelters. This is oversight, making sure that residents and and clients and workers and city property were secured while people came in. And that was a whole other level of understanding because 
even though I worked in the most disenfranchised schools of, of the city for for decades, I didn't really understand what I was seeing. But the abject poverty and the failure of the Board of Education in teaching specific demographics was like something that was like something that's wrong here. But in that observation, I also had the opportunity to go to schools where there was money. That was my reward for doing such a good job in the schools where there was abject poverty, like Watley and areas where there were no finances. So they rewarded me with LaGuardia, which was a whole nother perspective. In fact, how funny is this? Giuliani's daughter was going to that school. That was the year that um she had gotten arrested shoplifting. Yeah. And they changed that whole conversation to, you know, having problems. And, you know, when you're black and you steal, you're just a thief. But when you're white and you steal, you have some type of psychosis. And I didn't really know what I was looking at until I started working with HRA. And I started seeing the same children that I saw when I was working in the schools because now they're adults. They're 20 years old. Like, say, six years had passed. Four years in high school, now you're 18. Either you're successful and you've gone to college or you're not. And they weren't. And they were in the welfare centers and they were in the shelters. So I saw what the progression of of disenfranchisement looked like at the back end. And I mean, it was a humbling experience because it got to the point where my husband didn't allow me to take money to work. I had to take lunch because he said, you keep giving all your money away? What's wrong with you? Like, he didn't understand, like, these are my you, these are my kids. I know these kids. I know their families. Like, there's no way in the world I come to work and I got 40 bucks and I know they don't have any money. I know they're living in a shelter. I know, and I don't give them $20? Like, are you serious? So, yeah, I had to have bag lunch. And then I wasn't eating. That was the thinnest point in my life because I was still giving my food away because they would keep them in this place called Riverview, the welfare center over on the east side, that all the shelters of the city of New York, if you were a resident of the shelters, you would have to go there. So everybody who was there was definitely homeless and were waiting for emergency services. So now, how can I come into work with lamb chops and string beans and and women come in and I know they're in the shelter and I know they haven't eaten and they're sitting here with a baby and the kids are hungry and you can see it on their face. And I'm talking about I'm going to go to lunch and eat. Like, really? Nah. You're going to give up that pork chop? You're going to give up that lamb chop? You're going to give up everything you have, at least me anyway, to make sure that they have what they need. And it was humbling. And it still is humbling when I think about it. And I think that's what's um, got me in the community that I live in. Because when my husband died, I had to move. And I moved to a, a community that the aesthetics were off. And... I couldn't figure out why these aesthetics off, but I had done some research and I came across this study by Columbia University called The Pattern. And The Pattern is a study that they did for the Department of Corrections called The Pattern, Million Dollar Blocks, Columbia University, that they went to every block in urban communities in Brooklyn and Harlem and in, in, in Chicago and looked at how much money each block would generate for the Department of Corrections. My block right here is worth $3.3 million to the Department of Corrections. But they have not figured out how much money needs to go back into the community to keep these young people from going to jail. 
My whole science now is like that poor education perpetuates poverty and poverty perpetuates incarceration. And that's a hamster wheel that they have to keep people of color on in this community in order to keep the machine running. I grew up in this community. I went to PS36 in Harlem. And my parents took me out of PS36 and my mother put me into a private institution. My mother said, you'll never go to a public school again. Even my children. So uh, again, there's an education theme and the inspiration to impact change. And what I know a little bit about is that you wanted to get a promotion and you also had an injury and you were facing a few challenges. Yeah, I wanted a promotion and that encounter was less than admirable, shall I say. It was um, every day being undercut and and devalued and overworked. I had a, a captain I really loved and and I had received a lot of accolades from the then commissioner of um, HRA, and she wound up leaving. And it was a pleasure to work with her. And then another regime came in, and it just became difficult for women to move up. Hmm. I mean, just across the board. And because I was the senior person, I, I, I was the one with the most city time, had the most experience. I, I, you know, what should have been was ne- never materialized, and it was by design. And you know, they they made comparisons to not having education as being a reason for not giving promotion. First of all, the job that I was applying for, there was no need for a degree. But make a long story short, I went and got a degree. I got a degree in communications because when I spoke to people in in those scenarios, those very those life-changing situations that they were encountering. I wanted to make sure that they had clarity as to what I was saying. It was important for me to be able to make sure that everyone that I came in contact with in that in those conditions understood exactly what I needed them to understand. In the welfare centers and in the shelters, emotions run very high. You know, Maslow's theory is a real thing. Hierarchy of needs. If you don't have the bottom rung, then you're in survival mode. Mm -hmm. And everybody there was in survival mode. They had either no food, no home, or no place to live. So the level of desperation was at an all-time high all the time. And it was just, it was gut-wrenching. And I think about how poverty and, and, and lack of finances can affect people emotionally. You know what it is when your check is messed up. Imagine that check times 12 months, times mm-hmm. eight years, or generational, because the kids didn't have any money and their parents didn't have any money. So everybody is at war with anything at any given moment. Things are like a tinderbox. Emotions are so raw. And they're so desperate. I've seen the men tackle the women down to eat the sandwiches knowing they had children. Mm. But it's survival mode. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, the communication was very important and the education was even more important. 
So Ruth, there's 13 candidates for one seat. Can you imagine? No. Well, most of all, my constituents know who I am. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I was walking the other day and somebody had taken down my sign. And I said, hmm. I said, you see that, Lord? They took my poster down. And God said to me, people only remove what they fear. Yeah. They were afraid. She took mm-hmm. my poster down and she put her poster up. We could have been there together, but she knows. I mean, I give you better than even money. Because I've been following you a little. You literally push your sleeves up. Your story about giving your money away and then giving your lunch away, you're still doing that. Um, I have no choice. I I, understand. I wish I could stop, but I can't even stop. And to me, like I'm coming out of retirement for this. You know, I'm retired. And I thought I would be in a pool, building my in-ground pool with my house, walking <laughs> around with swatches and mimosas. That's what I saw for myself. I never <laughs> thought I would be doing this with these people. But at the end of the day, my children are everything to me. And, and one of the reasons I'm running, because they have nowhere to go. Nobody wrote these young people into the narrative. And I'm like, how dare you? We're not in the 1800s where you don't have anything after the 13th Amendment. That's not going to happen. Not on my watch. We're going to speak to this thing and we're going to craft out some verbiage on how these kids are supposed to live. Hmm. So what do mothers do? I have children who are college graduates who are making more than $25 an hour and can't even get 25 hours a week and can't even move out because the medium income income is $88,000 or you need 40 times the rent. Where can these young people go? So that was the platform that sparked you yes. to want to fix things. I had to change and make a make a way of escape for them. I mean, and it's not just my kids, it's all of these young people. All kids. That's why they're so angry. Like mm-hmm. they, they have promises and they have empty promissory notes. If you play the game and you go to school and do you do everything you're supposed to do, and then there's no reward, social development is a needed thing. That's how we develop into individuals, adults. I, I was fed up. And I said, like, these people have been in power for decades. So now you've already proven that you can't do it. So now you have to fall back. And I'll show you how this is done. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Ruth, what have you learned throughout this process? And I know that we're still a good month out before the election. But this has been a long road for you to get to this point. Well, it's been a road. I won't say a long road because even without the job, the job still has to be done. There are pieces of legislation that I'm still pushing right now as I sit in my house looking like scary spites. <laughs> people need to understand the things that you need to be supporting. I, I, well, I fought for bail reform and they rolled that back and we won. I, I'm, I fought for halt solitary. And so far, they're still trying to roll that back, and we're still pushing forward. I'm fighting for right to fair housing. That's one of the pieces on my website that allows returning citizens the opportunity to get housing without having a criminal background check. Then the right to um, remain silent that is a bill to help children under 18 not be questioned by NYPD. All the things that we know about the Central Park Five in this community, no legislation has been made. How is that possible 30 years later? So yeah, there's things that I have to fight for. In or out, you gotta, it's things, it's work to be done. And you should not be coming 
looking for a job. This is not a job. This is a nonverbal contract on making sure of, of, that your community and the residents get what they need and deserve. A job? Go to McDonald's. I am so full of admiration and my heart is making me smile because I know somebody like Ruth McDaniels who is not waiting till somebody elects her and you've impacted so much change from your living room. Well, from the street, from the street, the kids get a, every time I come down, they're like, here she goes. Cause I'm like, somebody get a broom, clean this up. Yeah. We're not waiting for sanitation. Now, how was sanitation? Sanitation. I'll, I'll create a whole new privatized sanitation department. I don't need them. We don't need them. But yeah, it, it, it's okay. Because you know what? You do it until you get it right. And you do it until somebody else picks up the torch. That's it. I, I tell my kids, Love I hope that. I don't drop dead doing it, you know, because it takes a lot out of me. There's some days I'm spent. There's some days I'm exhausted. Like this morning I walked and I was exhausted. I thought I would be out with my tent. Did you see my tent, Evie? I did. Yes. Yeah, you didn't. Is- yeah. You didn't wait for an office. Mm-mm. I'm not doing yeah. an office. But an office is for those who want to remain in the ivory tower. It's too much work to do. We have work to do. Not just me, the whole community, every individual in Harlem has to be actively engaged in getting what we need. Do you see your inspiration yeah. motivating other people? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ruth, that must be the most Im- just incredible feeling. It, it, it's a surreal feeling. And even like my campaign manager, who's my neighbor, and she said the most humbling thing. I'm like, you know, like you helped me so much. She said, no, because I know. She says, I'm not, I'm not wrong on people. I don't know why they, they, they believe me. When I you, come out the petitions and they sign them, like boom, 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 it's humbling. Like I ask God, never let me let them down for that. That's, that's when people trust you like that, you got to value that. You've got to make sure that you never violate that and, and you nurture that and, and you give it back and you, and you show up. That's when you show up. It's like, you know, hmm, it's like having the ball and you're getting ready to make that three point shot. And everybody's like, if we don't get this shot, we're going to lose every day. I got to get that shot because they're depending on me. And, and it, I have to show up. I got to show up. Don't count Ruth out because she's still engaged. Yeah. Well, you've, you've learned a lot and I think more importantly, Ruth, you have taught people so much. And uh, I'm so happy to be able to share a little bit of your message. And where can we find you and support you? It's Ruth McDaniels. I'm Googleable, And you can find me in the streets. I'm in, okay. the, streets. I'm in the streets because there's work to do. My own Instagram is Ruth.McDaniels52. I don't even know where they got that number 52 for. They should have used nine. <laughs> Yeah. All right. It's quite a living, Ruth. Evie, it is quite a life. Well, I really want to thank you for listening, for sharing, for subscribing to, hopefully, even rating this podcast and telling your friends because, after all, this is just about talking with friends. So thank you for being in my expanding circle of friends. And the truth is, whether you're living quite the living, we're all really lucky to be living quite the life.